I think I only ate lasagna for about a year. I was completely obsessed. Uncovering the most amazing stories from the most talented innovators and creatives in marketing, tech and digital. This is the Wonderful People podcast. So, Phil, we're a few episodes into the podcast now, and uh, I don't know if our listeners have realised, but there might be a slight age gap between us, although you look more like a brother from another mother. You're you're ageing well, (laughs) like a fine wine. But tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up in the mean streets of Manchester. As you know, I'm from Maidstone, and I want to know all about life in uh, whatever decade, you're going to say, in Manchester. Well, it's funny you should say that, Dan, but... Uh, I, I grew up on a council estate called Langley Estate in Manchester. It was an overspill. And basically, they were knocking down all the houses in Hume and they had to put people somewhere. And they created this council estate and just shoved a lot of us up there. But that was in the early 1950s. Wow. So and back then, in order to get a council house on an estate, you had to have three children. So that's probably, I'm the oldest of, of the three of us, two girls, and the other two, I'm sure they were there just in order that we could get this house on Langley <laughs> Estate. But uh, the games then, it was just, fo- it, it's football more than anything else. It was everybody, every kid would come home from nursery or school or wherever, and they'd just go out on the street at the front, they'd have the grids outside, the grids would be the goalpost. You'd play heading the ball always. It'd be like headers. And the balls then were a lot thicker and heavier. And, you know, there's a bit of talk now about um, people who've headed the ball too much and it's affected them. Uh, God knows why I've still got a head, because that's what (laughs) I did. Uh, The other thing I used to love was building the airfix little aeroplanes and and Stuka bombers, you know, because it wasn't that long after the war. And anything that was the German Messerschmitts or what have you, I was building them and aircraft carriers. I just, I just loved all that. And, and I suppose finally, you would make your own toys. So I know that at the time back then it was cowboys and Indians were like what you would see on television. Uh, and telly was also in black and white then, by the way. But <laughs> I would, I'd have a load of my mum's buttons from her sewing kit. And I'd have the, the blue buttons would be the soldiers. And the pink buttons would be the Indians, and you'd be just dropping them in cushions and hiding them. But you'd create your own games. We wouldn't, I wouldn't have had a normal game that I would have considered my own. But you're a lot younger, so what about you? No, that's brilliant. So you were playing up with the with your mum's buttons, and the kids nowadays play Fortnite. On the, you know, on their, on their Xbox Ones and their massive machines. That's brilliant. Now, I think, you know, football for me was always big growing up. We had a park just behind my house and after school, everyone would run there and play football. But you know what was massive? One of my biggest childhood memories is um, Lego. It's playing with Lego. I remember going to my cousin's house, house he lived up the road, and we just used to play Lego for hours. It was football. And then when we needed a break, we played Lego. Yeah. And you know what's really funny is like we used to, my cousins used to have the um, loads of the Star Wars kits, like all the TIE fighters and all of the kind of all the different robots and characters. And now my children have got the same Star Wars kits. So I'm, I'm thinking about Lego 35, 40 years ago. And now my kids are playing this with the same kit 40 years later. 
And you, you kind of, you realize, for me, realize the power of brand, you know, that power where when you've got such a strong purpose and Lego has been such a, has such a strong purpose over so many years that it carries on through the generations. You know, they've kept innovating, but they've kept true to who they are. So Lego is a massive part of my growing up. Oh, well that, that now is my, my grandchildren. They right. uh, literally, our house looks like a bomb's hit it every time they come because they just empty out this case full of Lego all over the hall and then they start building things. And That's they're, brilliant. They're really impressive. So uh, I've skipped a generation, really. <laughs> so it's the yeah. grandchildren that I'm, I'm learning about Lego through my grandkids, which is very nice. That's brilliant. And I think that brings us on to today's guest, who's going to talk to us in a little bit more detail about Lego. So over to you, Phil. Today, we're joined by a creative director who, having worked agency side for over two decades, now heads up all things creative, one of the world's most loved brands, Lego. Not content with running one of the biggest in-house agencies around, responsible for all Lego branded content, is also a force to be reckoned with when it comes to shining a spotlight on diversity and inclusion in the creative industry. She's dedicated much of her spare time spearheading initiatives that help mentor and educate female creatives and is a regular voice on this topic. Topic? I'm not sure what a topic is. Topic. <laughs> Dan and I are really excited to welcome the wonderful Emma Perkins, head of Lego agency EMEA to get the goss on what's been going down at Lego headquarters and what we have to look forward to. Emma Perkins. Thank you so much. Very excited to be here. Uh, just to follow on your theme, I got North Macedonia in the sweepstakes. So, uh, <laughs> not up there, I'm afraid. Oh, goodness. We're all going to be commiserated in about two weeks, aren't we? Yeah. I think I've got Wales. I've got Wales in the sweepstakes. So, yeah, there we go. I can only say in 2004, one of my mates got Greece and was really upset because he'd got Greece and they won the ah. tournament. It's hasn't for so watch out North Macedonia. You never know. You never know. <laughs> Let's hope so. So welcome, Emma. It's so great to have you on the podcast with us. Thank you. And we always start with a big, deep and meaningful question, which is if you were to be stuck in a lift with someone, who would it be and why? Oh, I love this question. Um, I think you'd want to be stuck with someone. Um, who could tell a good story, wouldn't you, if you were stuck in there for hours? Uh, now, this would have to be a, a time-travelling lift. Uh, I wish I'd had the opportunity to meet Tony Benn, politician, writer, diarist, national radical treasure. Um, and I'm always so always really humbled by and inspired by people who work to improve the lot of others. He wrote 11 volumes of diaries uh, with amazing stories in. So I'd, I'd love to pick his brains about all of those. But if I could share one that I found really inspiring, um, he put up several plaques quite illegally uh, and without permission, using his own money around the Houses of Parliament. And one was in the broom cupboard to commemorate uh, Emily Wilding Davidson. And this is what it said. It said, in this broom cupboard, Emily Wilding Davidson hid herself illegally during the night of the 1911 census. She was a brave suffragette campaigning for votes for women at a time when Parliament denied them that right. In this way, she was able to record her address on the night of the census as being the House of Commons, thus making her claim to the same political right as men. 
Emily Wilding Davidson died in June 1913 from injuries sustained when she threw herself under the King's horse at the Derby oh. to draw public attention to the injustice suffered by women. By such means was democracy won for the people of Britain. And whenever I read that, I just get the hand, you know, the hairs stand up wow. on the back of my neck. So, uh, yeah, would love to spend a few hours with Tony Benn if I could have done. Wow. Amazing. Very cool. Actually, I find his son is very impressive as well, isn't he? Very, yeah. Yeah, whenever you, whenever you hear him get up and talk in the house, he's a really impressive person. I'd like to see more of him. What a good choice. I think that's our first political choice, isn't it, Dan? Definitely, I think so. There aren't many of them you'd want to be stuck in a lift with, that's for sure. <laughs> Definitely not many of the current crop. <laughs> so, Emma, you've had a number of interviews where you've been talking about the in-house legacy of Lego. But before we go into chatting about Lego, could you give us some of the highlights of your career so far? Because you've worked at a lot of big agencies, CDP, Chael, Saatchi and Saatchi, Mull and Lowe. I think you, your journey started, was it Evans Hunt Scott many, many years ago? That's right. You, give us some highlights of your, your story before joining Lego, that would be amazing. Well, interestingly, I think when I reflect on the 20 plus years I spent in advertising agencies, any work that I did that had a positive impact where I was doing something that resonated with my own personal purpose, I think those were highlights. I often took on briefs or clients or departments that others didn't see any opportunity in. Uh, but to me, that's where you could create real change or have significant impact. But there are probably three that that um, I, I would mention. I, I worked on P&G for many, many years at Saatchi. Um, and I remember a simple on-pack promotion brief coming in, which led to the Pampers UNICEF initiative, which I worked on for the first seven years. But over the last 15 years, the partnership has helped to save an estimated 1 million newborn lives around the world from maternal and neonatal tetanus. Incredible. So, of course, wow. when you're in any way involved in something like that, such purpose-driven marketing, I, I think that really opened my mind to the power of, uh, you know, purchase power and what big, big brands could achieve if they wanted to do something positive for the world. Um, wow. I'm also super proud when I help um, teams, creatives get an idea off of a bit of paper and made into a reality, particularly proactive ideas. Uh, one piece springs to mind the redraw the balance content, which um, is a participation idea to demonstrate how gender stereotypes are developed at a very young age. Um, and this idea had sat with the creative team for quite a while when I put them in touch with the CEO of an organization called Inspiring the Future. I knew their agenda to help broaden the aspirations and interests of children about jobs and careers, uh, as well as having a very entrepreneurial CEO. So it felt like the stars were aligning would be a great fit. So we got that piece um, off the ground um, and the work that the team did got great reach. It also became an experiment recreated around the world in classrooms by teachers and broadcasters. So I love pieces of work like that, that, that you make happen. That, that's a joy, I think, um, when you can be involved in that sort of way. And then, Phil, you mentioned, um, uh, you know, things that I do kind of outside of the work, if you like, and blowing the doors off the traditional grad scheme at Saatchi years ago and creating an internship programme 
where anyone could come in and do a lift pitch to the senior leadership team, literally in the time it took the lift to get from the ground floor to the top floor. Oh, how lovely. Um, and we sent coaches all over the country to pick people up from colleges, as even getting to London was a barrier at that point. Um, but that was that was a, a great initiative to get off the ground um, and, yeah, saw lots of people go through training programmes off the back of that, which was great. Oh, amazing. That's fantastic. And Emma, didn't, um, didn't Mr Jones have something to do with your early career? He did. He mentioned EHS. I was studying um, design at Falmouth School of Art and um, Phil was actually the person who helped me get my first job in an agency. So um, I think your role, you're on the board at Falmouth. Is that right, Phil? Is I was right? in those days. What year was that? That you went oh. there. <laughs> oh, you're not allowed to ask that. <laughs> yeah, you look. I could see. I could see you, but our listeners can't. But you look quite young to me. Uh, now we're talking. Uh, Twenty-five years ago. Twenty-five years ago. So yeah, I was. I was. Was uh, Alan Livingstone was your dean? Yes, yes he was. And, uh, Chrissy Truick was one of your lecturers. Yes. Yep, yeah, absolutely. So I was a visiting lecturer, and in those days. It was just about pre-digital days and all of my, I used to chat to them about typography and type and I was chairman of the typographic circle for five years. So I used to do quite a lot with students back then and really enjoyed it. And Falmouth was one of my favourites. I think Jonathan Ellery is one of the guys who's become a good friend who's ex-Falmouth and there are lots of others. Uh, I didn't know I got you your first job, so I'm really chuffed about that. That's that's a good way to start this interview, isn't it? So. Yeah, you were, well, I, I think I mentioned before, but the number of people who, when you mention that uh, you helped me on my career path, the number of other creative people who say, Phil helped me get my first job. So I think the way you helped young people get into the in industry and beyond was um, amazing. Yeah, so... Uh, that first year at college, we weren't allowed anywhere near a Mac, uh, which I think is a great principle, actually, to, to yeah. learn, uh, you know, principles of, of design and typography. And, yeah, I, you helped me get a work experience placement uh, with, through Ken Scott. I think your business was downstairs and his business yeah, was upstairs right. in Soho Square. Yeah. But I still remember going to the phone box on Soho Square and calling my mum and dad to say uh, that I'd got my first job, which was really amazing. Uh, well, Ken Scott was... a hilarious funny what you would call a typical advertising guy wasn't he he was he was like when you look back on what made advertising so much fun it was people like him and it became quite serious after that it was a lot a lot more difficult to get away with spending the afternoon in the groucho club yeah <laughs> I might have had a few of those but um like the thing that I learned there was really what it was like to be in a business where the names above the door were still running the business. Um, and I think that really stuck with me that whether it's a family business or a founder business, that, that has some, that's something that, uh, that those are probably the businesses that I've loved the most, if I'm honest. Yeah, right, interesting. Oh, that, you've brought back some lovely memories there. And especially being at Seven Soho Square. Absolutely. That, what a fantastic address that was. Surrounded by good pubs. <laughs> There's a lot of pub conversation going on here, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> Not surrounded two, by good agencies, but surrounded by good pubs. A 30 seconds walk to the Toucan Bar, and that, that was it. I didn't have to walk any further. 
his spiritual home. But well, we need to move on now because we've got loads of questions there. Go but, on, Dan. And this is this is brilliant stuff. Now we're going to go a little bit, you know, further ranging with the questions and ask about technology because you know, obviously, in the last year, we've become more and more reliant on technology. And and you know, how do you think, or what's your your perspective on? how technology is impacting the next generation, you know, children, and how do you think it will change in the future? How, how do you kind of see the evolution? Well, firstly, I, I think about my own experience as a parent. I've got two boys, um, 11 and 9, and, you know, technology has offered amazing opportunities this past year right. for my kids to stay connected with their schoolwork, their friends, you know, clubs like Scouts all moved online. So, so that has been amazing. Um, and I, re I remember actually, I was fortunate enough to go to South by Southwest and I saw an author, uh, this guy who wrote Enchanted Objects, Innovation, Design and the Future of Technology. And he urges parents to create a home of tech abundance, which kind of seems counterintuitive to what parents are trying to do. Um, but he talks about a play environment that that's a maker's space, more like a workshop full of digital and physical play and to see tech as tools for imagination. And I do really love that idea, um, which is lucky in my house because my, my husband works in video games. So to say we've got an abundance of tech is, is an understatement. <laughs> um, but at the Lego group, we feel digital play will continue to grow. Um, of course, the Lego brick is at the core, the absolute core of our business, and it always will be. But digitalization and technology really does offer us fantastic opportunities to add new and exciting layers to the Lego experience. And we know that 77% of parents believe digital play helps boost creativity. Um, that said, as kids spend more time, um, you know, increasing amounts of their lives online, digital child safety and well-being is becoming really important. And it's maybe not something that people associate with the Lego group, but it's a real priority for us. Right. And it's certainly something I worry about as a parent. Um, and whilst I see the potential, you know, managing devices is also the bane of my life. Um, so ensuring digital experiences that we create are safe and fun is incredibly important. We were actually the first company to launch a digital child safety policy which complies with UNICEF's Global Child Online Protection Guidelines. And so we continue to innovate in that area. Um, now, from an agency perspective, uh, we do a lot of the comms for our CSR team, and we created uh, the Build and Talk campaign, which we launched last year, because research has found that 84% of parents are worried about their children's online safety, but they only spend a total of 46 minutes talking to their children about online security during their entire childhood. Wow. It's actually really difficult to sit kids down and talk about that and make it interesting and engaging. So we've developed Build and Talk, which is a series of creative challenges inspired by those UNICEF guidelines, where you talk to your child as you build with Lego bricks. And we actually find that it just kind of acts as an icebreaker and you can bring some of those subjects to life uh, in a really playful way that's amazing can you um can parents and, and, and carers download that online or how do you access absolutely that? yeah you go to lego.com and you can find all of the activity packs there that's absolutely brilliant i've got an 11 and a nine year old as well and i can oh. completely what you're saying <laughs> having said that my 11 year old he's uh, he's he loves reading he's into sports all of that but after his shower in the evening 
he still often disappears into his bedroom and he just plays Lego for like half an hour to an hour. Or Good just get lost in his own little world, you know. And so, no, I still... And his floor is still covered in Lego. It's absolutely brilliant. Amazing. So, but I love that those guides are so important because it is hard as a parent, you know, or a carer to know how do you educate your children and how do you help them along that journey and it's it's a journey that we never really had when we were growing up because we didn't have the, the, these sort of challenges but, but we're quite so unprepared important. yeah really very much so oh, that's brilliant thank you for sharing that yeah i must be a lot younger than you guys because i've got a six and a three-year-old <laughs> <laughs> and a generation in between uh, i do i hasten to add their both grandchildren <laughs> yeah exactly and the six-year-old is lego mad i mean completely we've got them here for a sleepover tonight the two of them while um, our daughter goes out with her husband so but lego straight in there he'll be there and then it's movie night we've got to choose a movie right? lego movie the lego movie you know how many um, times watch the lego movie in our house i mean yeah. dozens and dozens of times oh really yeah oh. yeah yeah. they sing the songs and it's, it's very funny it's brilliant well, emma emma just for the way you talk about lego you're it's quite obvious you're very proud of the environment that you're working in, but it's two weeks ago, um, Time listed the first ever Time 100 most influential companies. And of course, Lego's in there, in the world. So that, that must make you feel quite proud. You know, it's the love of the brand that brings people to the Lego group, and that's above any job title. That was certainly the case for me. Um, working on a brand with a strong purpose is an amazing feeling. And it's always humbling, of course, to receive such recognition, but I think particularly so given the challenges of the last year. Yeah. Uh, we've just focused on doing what's right. We've lived our values. And I have to be totally honest, values at Lego aren't something that are just written on a wall, you know, in a reception area. They are really lived. So it's down to the work and the passion of all of our incredible employees around the world, 18,000 of them, but in terms of being influential, our aim is to have a positive impact on children and wider society. And, and that's what helps us all stay motivated. On a practical point, going from working in various agencies and sectors to, to in-house, what, what was the real difference there between in-house and agency side? I do get asked this a lot, so I've, I've thought a lot about it. And I think there are three key areas that we looked at. And, and the first thing to say, which I think is true of most in-house agencies, we talk about having skin in the game. Our work has to work. You know, we're, we're not there to work for fame. Uh, and I'd say that's a difference uh, between most external and, and in-house agencies in terms of what the primary driver is, and that's work that works. The second area is that we outsource our non-strategic work. So that was a step we made a couple of years ago. Enjoying our podcast? Remember to subscribe, share and leave us a review. Now, in-housing for us is not a cost-saving exercise. And I think a lot of in-house agencies start at that point. Um, but particularly for us, it's about having a superior understanding of kids' communication, which, to be honest, not a lot of externals have. Uh, knowing what's right for our brand and what's needed. But collaborating with external partners, agencies, brands, other creators is actually one of the joys. So it's not that we, we don't uh, collaborate with externals, we certainly do. And then the last thing, um, which I think has only really come into fruition in the last year for us, um, or, or particularly for the team that I look after in London, 
is developing proactive thinking to help solve business problems. We don't always wait to be briefed. We take proposals to the business because we're close enough to know what's needed. And we do work on short-term business priorities, uh, but as an in-house team, we can also spot longer-term opportunities and that allows us to create beyond what we're briefed to do. So we've been able to shift production budget around to make that sort of thing happen. And a recent example of that is us pitching LegoCon, which will be our first digital convention that goes live on the 26th of June. Right. Oh, yeah. And how to explain a little bit more about LegoCon? That sounds like the best, best convention ever. <laughs> well, do, do tune in. It's two weeks on Saturday. Um, and yeah, it's two hours, um, a 90 minute live stream. Uh, kicking off with uh, a pre-show by all of our AFOLs, our adult fans of Lego, who will be talking about how they use creativity, um, uh, which will be fantastic, uh, all the different ways, but beyond how they build with bricks, actually, stop motion photography, um, uh, animation, um, so lots of uh, interesting areas there, but it's, it's really, we're going to be sharing lots about our uh, portfolio but it's really a behind the scenes look at lego getting closer to our design community and our designers it's the first time we've ever done it it's a pilot um so fingers crossed uh, that that people enjoy it we've certainly enjoyed making it oh that's brilliant you spoke recently at the uh, for the in-house agency leaders club and i've never heard of it but it sounds really interesting group could you tell us a little bit about them who they are. Yeah, I can a little bit um, from what I know, set up by um, Patrick Burgoyne, who used to um, be the editor of Creative Review. Yeah. And um, just the rise of the number of in-house agencies, um, you know, led him to, to set this piece up. And so uh, it's not dissimilar to this, uh, but focused on in-house agencies, um, a series of interviews, uh, but it's a kind of, uh, you sign up as part of the network, and um, then you're kind of part of this uh, group where you discuss and ask questions. So it's not just an interview, but also people can ask questions. So it's kind of like a closed group, I think, which kind of helps that openness a little bit. Lovely. Um, but yeah, but do do look it up because um, I'm probably doing it a slight disservice, uh, but uh, no, it's a great uh, idea to celebrate in-house agencies. Yeah, I agree. Uh, now that I know Patrick's involved, I'll ask I'll ask Patrick because I, I didn't I've never heard of it and didn't realise he was. Because he was at DNAD. He was, yeah. And then he, he left. I wasn't sure what he was up to. That that sounds really interesting. Oh, Patrick was 10 years editor of Creative Review. So he is a brilliant guy for getting the right stories from all these people. And, and all, he's someone that you could trust with chatting to. So I, I think it's a really great idea. I just didn't know it existed until I saw it written down. So that's lovely. Well brilliant. done. Emma, I just want to pick up on a campaign that Lego did um, during the 2021 sort of pandemic period. We had the stay at home message from, from the government and there was Lego's version of Westminster COVID stay at home message, which did materialise as a colour, sort of be a hero animation, wasn't it? Can you tell us a little bit about that and how did it materialise and did you get to chat with number 10 about that? Well, actually, it, um, so that was really, really early on in the pandemic last year. And it came off the back of a brief from the government to our government affairs team internally and our corporate right. comms team. And they were asking for a, a PSA that children could easily understand. I mean, if you remember back then, this was amid the government's really sort of solemn TV and radio announcements. And yes. it was felt 
that a film from Number 10 and the Lego group could perhaps brighten up the severity of the lockdown and emphasise the positive and give families ideas for that bank holiday weekend because that initial bank holiday weekend there was a real concern uh, that perhaps you know people weren't sure you know what um, rules they needed to adhere to um, so it was definitely a fly by the seat um, of your pants moment um, in just 72 hours we scripted it we wow. commissioned a partner to create a stop motion animation with this be a hero thought and the brickified Larry the cat and we got internal and government approvals, no mean feat. Uh, so it was, I've got to say, an epic effort by a small agile team who were, to be honest, just so driven to help British families at that moment, because suddenly we'd all gone from feeling so helpless. I don't think any of us really knew what to do. Um, and then suddenly you were given a brief where you felt like you could do something that could help. So when they said we need it in three days time, we said, you know what, we're going to somehow make that happen. Um, and of course, we started to then understand how Lego bricks and building together would become so needed throughout the pandemic. So what you're describing with your own children or your grandchildren, we've seen um, you know, Lego bricks just be so important to families, uh, when, when we, particularly when we were at home for those long periods of time. And we don't see that abating, actually. That's fantastic. Brilliant. For a long time, you've been spearheading the discussion about gender diversity and the gender imbalance in the creative industry. Of all the male leaders that you interviewed with the token man experiment, uh, which person or organisation impressed you the most? So... That was quite early in the advertising industry's diversity and inclusion journey. And including men in the discussion as allies was still quite a new concept. So anything that I do is never about talking to women about things that affect women. You know, it's about everyone being involved in that discussion because uh, no one can change these things by themselves. So I can't say... I wouldn't, my answer is possibly slightly different. I was really impressed at that time by any of the senior leaders who wanted to lean into that discussion because it wasn't necessarily a normal thing. And Token Man was set up to create a, an environment where, where men felt that they could um, learn more about the issue as, as well as talk about what their organisations were doing and perhaps feel that they might say the wrong thing um, but feel comfortable enough to to learn from that. And I think, you know, it is a journey. It's constantly evolving. So so wanting to say, look, I, I want to make a difference here. I might get the right, not use the right language and language is incredibly important around that topic. But, you know, I think it's important that we speak about it um, and that then we create action off of the back of it. So to be honest, we learned most from the male leaders outside of the ad industry. Brands were way more progressive with their working practices and policies. And often what we'd hear from agencies at that time was this idea of us being a service industry and, uh, you know, that, that we weren't able to make some of the policy changes about ways of working uh, that were needed around that discussion because of clients. But then when you spoke to those clients, they had really progressive policies so it's not necessarily an individual that I was inspired by, but I would say, you know, if you look through the brands that we spoke to and the external organisations, they, they were the most impressive. And um, what do you think the biggest challenge is for women 
currently sitting in a minority at senior management level? I think that uh, it's interesting me now being at the Lego Group, um, which, you know, is very different to working in an external agency in terms of corporate policy and um, how front of mind DNI is and female progression and making sure that we have a pipeline uh, of female talent. Um, so I'm not sure that I feel anymore that my femaleness is is a challenge in uh, you know my progression as leadership because a lot of those barriers within the organization I now work have been taken down Amen. typically what we found through my work in mentoring is that we see we lose a lot of women um, at certain points in their career so uh, this is um, when women become carers when they have young children or actually if they're having to look after elderly parents you can see uh, that we see a sharp drop off because what we don't see actually is a problem at um, the entry level point. We can see a sort of 50-50 male female split into the industry. Um, you know, that, that may differ in certain skill sets, but broadly speaking, entry level isn't the problem. It's later on in someone's career. So I'm really interested to see how the world of work changes and the balance changes fueled and accelerated by the pandemic, because I think the fact that we will be able to have more work-life balance, people will be able to be more present at home, particularly for um, caring duties such as children, will make an enormous difference to retention. But just to say that's that's not a women's issue, right? That's that's uh, um, um, as much a man's issue as it is a woman. But being able as a parent to say to your employer, I need to be more present. I need to be at home these days to do these things. I think is just going to be an absolutely fantastic thing for our industry and retaining talent overall. And you're, you're, um, you mentioned mentoring a few times. And one of the groups you mentor with is Who's Your Mama? Well, tell us about those guys, because most people listening to this won't know, they won't know token men, they won't know who's your mama. So give us some info. So uh, she says is the only creative network for women. I think that's still uh, still the case. And um, back when I would say that I was struggling a bit when I had uh, two very young kids, um, a husband who also had a full time career. I was flying all around the world on shoots. Uh, ECD level um, involved in mostly new business and pitching and pitches uh, I really felt that I needed uh, my own mentor someone who was experiencing that at a senior level um, and who had a sort of similar setup at home so I reached out to she says and uh, at that point they said to us we think someone like Caitlin Ryan would be a great person for you to speak to um, and Caitlin, well, actually, you know, not just Caitlin, but a number of very senior women were. Um, and you'll often find this when you ask for any sort of guidance or um, mentoring. People are so generous with their time. Mm. And uh, I was given a lot of time by um, some very inspiring women who navigated those issues. And um, then the She Says team said to me, would you help us uh, get Who's Your Mama off the ground in London? Uh, the idea is um, to have a mentoring program uh, run by volunteers, so run by people in the industry uh, for, for women in the industry. And so um, I've handed over the reins now uh, of that and it's, and it's gone on to, to be hugely successful. But yeah, it's a, it's a peer-to-peer mentoring group, completely free. There's a bit of a waiting list. 
um, and uh, run by a, a fabulous uh, Saul team now. So yeah, please do look them up. Yeah, wow. brilliant. Emma, a slightly different question. If you were to create any character out of Lego, what would it be and why? Now, if you were to ask me, Emma the child, you know, right. as a child of the Emma. 80s, yeah. I probably would have said Garfield. I think I only ate lasagna for about a year. I was completely <laughs> obsessed. Good show. Um, but now, as an adult fan, and remember, we also have a huge community of AFOLs, adult fans of Lego. If I could create any character, I think immortalising Mary Anning and her amazing fossils, her ichthyosaur that's um, in, in the Natural History Museum in Lego bricks is, is what I'd love to see today. But we actually see so many awesome ideas submitted by our fans to our Lego ideas platform, where right. the designer of any winning submission voted on by fans get a share, gets a share in the profits. So you never know. We, we, I'm sure if we haven't already seen that idea, we, we may well do in the future. That's brilliant. Like so we've got we've got the 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 80s version and we've got the adult version. I like that. <laughs> I like that very good. And and kind of I mean just kind of drilling. I know we're bouncing around from questions here, but drilling back into kind of the way that I suppose the strategy works with the agency, because you've, you've divert, Lego's diversified massively to cover sort of multiple disciplines from identity to package design, to brand, promo activities, experiential, so on and so forth. How's that, you know, what's the strategy behind this move? You know, is instead of just sort of sticking between product and to, you know, to, to advertising, you know, it's, it's a very, very diverse strategy and quite complex. Yeah, and, and the Lego group has had some, form of in-house agency for coming up to 20 years actually. Initially design teams sat with advertising teams who were also responsible for writing the content for TV series like Ninjago, the animated TV series, that all happened within the agency. But over the last four years we've been regrouping a lot of the in-house creative talent from various parts of the group to build an end-to-end -end agency of about 400 people around the world. And the people who join us are I think really interested in working with people from different backgrounds. They talk about enjoying that variety of the work that you talk about. Uh, we have a very, we have an incredible um, ecosystem and that's why we have to meet the demands of that ecosystem, whether it's packaging, uh, materials for our stores, um, our digital ecosystem. Um, and I think you have to, if, if you're joining uh, the Lego agency in particular, I think you have to have a genuine interest in creativity solving business problems, not just the craft of campaigns, because we've got a lot of different franchises and entities that make up that ecosystem. So it makes sense that an internal team are kind of best placed to help activate our own channels. And, and you won't find a Lego agency website. The success of any work we do is shared with colleagues across the Lego group. Brilliant. You mentioned Ninjago. I think I've watched most of those episodes as well over the last few years. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. I actually like, well, you, you mentioned Caitlin Ryan earlier on. And one of the things that, because I've spent so many years putting together seating plans at the various podges, you get to know different people's personalities. And her brother, Leo, is also quite well known in the digital industry. And if you invite one of them, but don't invite the other, you, you've got a real problem because it's like <laughs> the, the brother and, and there's a, quite a few of those like situations around where people who are related 
to each other. So the minute you send an invite out, you find out you've, you've got in trouble because you didn't on the same day <laughs> at the same time invite someone who's related to them. So Maybe. especially in design, it's like father and sons and, and mother and daughters, loads, loads of them. So it's mm -hmm. quite, have some fun with that. Well, it's a great so, industry to be in, isn't it? That, that's the truth. It is, yeah. Uh, my last question it's sort of having been available since 1945, which surprised me. Lego has been a household brand name for, for decades. A big part of that is to do with its identity and how that has translated through the marketing products, adapted to the latest animation and movies, and has really done a lot to stay relevant from generation to generation. What do you think the future of experiential marketing holds for brands like Lego? Or brands that want to be like Lego. Well, I mentioned it a moment ago, but the the Lego Group has built a really enviable ecosystem. I'm still totally in awe of it myself. Having our own channels, so our retail stores, for instance, is really driven by the desire to ensure the brand experience is the best it can be and is true to our values. And I'm sure the last year has taught brands that being able to have a direct relationship with your audiences through your own channels is absolutely paramount. But in terms of experience, I think digitalization and technology, that piece we talked about earlier, offers a fantastic opportunity to add those new and exciting layers to the Lego product experience and create those new play experiences for children. I mean, the age groups that you were talking about that you live with, you will start to see them some, to some degree, really drawn to digital experiences more and more. And so we know that as a brand, that's something that, um, that we need to be where kids are. Um, so yeah. that's definitely something that, that, that we're, we're doing more and more of. Brilliant. Emma, final question, and then we'll let you go. As an agency, we're all about sort of making complex things wonderfully simple. That's our kind of mantra. So what's one of life's complexities you would like to see made simpler? Well, I think we would probably follow the theme. Uh, and I, I, I do really love the idea of removing friction points as a really interesting way into problem solving and having new ideas. But I mentioned it earlier, but managing technology in kids and screen time, keeping them safe and the complexities of that is a continuous struggle in my house. I don't think not giving them a mobile phone or other devices is the way to go. Um, but much more has to be done to keep them safe. So if someone could simplify that for me, please. <laughs> Great answer. And it sounds like Lego could be the answer. Well, we're one of, but there is much more that uh, big businesses need to do to, to make kids safe online. Thank you for giving up your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And um, lovely to reminisce as well, Phil. Thank you for tuning in to the Wonderful People podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Wonderful Creative Agency. Find out more at thewonderful.co.uk.